Yep. Hello. Okay. So <laughs> say it's a dock at least. Okay. Okay. My mouth is dry. Water. Celsius. <laughs> Celsius seltzer? Celsius, um, energy. Hi everybody, my name is Cohen. And I'm Yasmina. And welcome to Open Thought. Open Thought is a podcast that embodies the willingness to actively consider new concepts and perspectives through literature, discourse, debate, and humor. And on this episode, we'll be kind of discussing Educated mm-hmm. by Tara Westover. Yep. It's been November, December, January. <laughs> it has been four months. Yeah, we're well, just busy. We're bringing you an episode now, so... You know. We're just kind of a big deal, just graduating and stuff. You're welcome. I'm sure you guys are on the edge of your seats. I'm on the edge of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't prepare. (laughs) Um, Do we want to start with like a summary? Yeah. Should we apologize first? My mom has been waiting for this episode. I've gotten lots of texts. And by lots of texts, I mean like three people (laughs) who are sort of my friends. Um, But (laughs) I have gotten texts asking about whether or not we were dropping another episode. Yeah. So I'll take full responsibility and say that this was entirely not my fault. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know you were going to call me out on the podcast. I have canceled on Cohen probably five times, maybe more. They've also been spaced out. So it's not like five times in a week. It's like once every two yeah it's like weeks. oh yeah next week and then when a cancel turns into another week and then it's four months i would also like to say that i i have thoroughly i do thoroughly enjoy making them i just have no time as a warning we read this book in a november november 20 20 ish and i can't say that i've been thinking about this book for the last quarter of a year i haven't but that's not to say it's not a really good book because before cohen gets to bring his opinion in. I'm going to say that I think it was a very good book and I'm not going to change my mind. Um, (laughs) But it's a great book. I just, once I read it, I was like, cool. And then I forgot about it. So we spent the last hour reviewing. Yeah. And what time is it right now? It's 9.13 PM. PM. Okay. So should we get into about educated? Yeah. It's a number one in all of the important what do you call it? Newspapers. Number one on New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Boston Globe bestseller, apparently. Wow. Um, I don't know who said this. Oh, Bill. Billiam Gates himself said, an amazing story and truly inspiring. It's even better than you've heard. Not Billiam. Billiam. You know why? She was a a, a Gates scholar, so like he had oh. to read her book. Yeah. Um, named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times book review, one of President Barack Obama, RIP. OG. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of President Barack Obama's favorite books of the year, Bill Gates' holiday reading list, finalist for National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography, and John Leonard Prize for okay. Best First Book, right. and so on. Here's the actual summary, though, <laughs> on Penguin Random House. Okay. Born to survivalist in the mountains of Idaho, Tara Westover was 17 the first time she set foot in a classroom. Her family was so isolated from mainstream society that there was no one to ensure the children received an education and no one to intervene when Tara's older brother became violent. 
When another brother got himself into college, Tara decided to try a new kind of life. Her quest for knowledge transformed her, taking her over oceans and across continents, to Harvard and to Cambridge University. Only then would she wonder if she traveled too far, if there was a way to still go home. This is the first autobiography I've ever been able to get through. Oh, really? It feels, I thought... No, yeah. Like, that's this is not... Anything that isn't fiction is really hard for me to get through, but because it's an autobiography that reads like a literal story because it's absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. It wasn't painful at all for me to read it. It like has to do with her being a good author, but I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of autobiographies are like, this is how my life went. Like, I think I read one about Lena Dunham, but like that was also half of it felt like it was made up. So I don't even think I count that as an autobiography, but this is the first time like someone was talking about their life and I was like, whoa, this is really <laughs> crazy. Um, and I, I don't know. I was interested throughout the entire time. So that was pretty cool. But I agree. It's really hard to write a summary for this. Also, because when I think about summaries, I always give things away. Like, like I, plot details? 100%. And so, like, I feel like I have not mastered the art of being able to write, like, an objective summary without um, being like, oh, and also her dad, she finds out later that her dad did this and her dad had this issue. So, Yeah, I think we definitely struggle to review slash discuss a book. Yeah. On one side, you would want to not reveal too many plot details, but how do you discuss a book without, without that? So yeah. we should have a way to receive feedback, but we're trying to figure out what's the right level of discussion and sharing of plot. So yeah, have thoughts about that? Let us know. Yeah, us, you know. DM us. Shout us we out still on have the these, gram. We st- <laughs> should we make one? I think we should make an Instagram. Okay. I th- we like- should at least make an email at the very least. <laughs> Emails first. <laughs> Emails first. No, you're right. What? Who's going to follow imagine, it? like, someone sending me, like, no one is going to be that interested to send a formal email that's like, and these are the points that I think that you should make on the next podcast. <laughs> but Fine. I feel like someone will be like, yo. <laughs> There's just no way to receive feedback on a podcast. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> at least not on Apple, because you definitely have to just write a review on the podcast in general. You mm-hmm. can't review a specific episode. I don't know for other platforms. Mm, I didn't know that. I thought I thought it was definitely episode by episode. Mm-hmm. That's Not like why YouTube. Yeah, maybe we should post on YouTube. We could do an IGTV. What's an IGTV? You know those like extra long videos on Instagram. You know when it's like uh, it's like click to watch more. That's just definitely just a, a video, right? Or is it live? It's definitely just a video. Oh, okay. But like we could do, we could post the whole podcast on there, right? Oh, should we have like an aerial view? We just like fly a drone, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like us there talking. What? Is that not what you're talking about? No. Oh, that's weird. (laughs) I'm saying, like, we can post the whole podcast as an IGTV video, just with, like, something Oh, just the audio. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you wanted drone footage. You want us to buy a podcast drone? No, I'm just going to hold it on a selfie stick. Like, like, the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Did you watch that? Yes, I watched it. Did you like it? No, I didn't like it. You didn't like it? it it was either that or he had Adam Levine taken off his shirt in like 2018. Okay, yes. But Alex and I had full sensory overload during the entire thing. Like I... Th- like too many... Flashing lights. Oh. Uh, well, blinding lights. <laughs> I'm glad. That's <laughs> And then like when they all go out in their weird fucking surgical masks. And That's like the theme of his whole last album, right? I know. Are you trying to make it so profound? Like the, yeah. <laughs> the message behind The Weeknd's... This is definitely a side note, but <laughs> the message behind The Weeknd's last album was like... Yeah, I just think that Hollywood got too many people yes. getting Botox. Yes. So, so, for imagery reasons, let me have everybody wear 
like surgical, surgery yeah. masks and like jump around. I didn't understand the meaning at all of him fucking having the selfie stick up to his head and like dancing and yeah and i didn't get that one none of it was i just wasn't buying it i also really felt cheapened out because i thought molly cyrus was doing the halftime show it turns out she was doing the before show oh but i remember was I sitting I down didn't i didn't see that because i suffered through the super bowl thinking that the halftime show is gonna be miley cyrus i can't believe you suffered through the super bowl I, unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't a good game either. So I wouldn't know. (laughs) I fell asleep during (laughs) Alex's mom sends her a text, and she was like, "How are you guys liking the Super Bowl?" I woke up through the like epileptic attack. (laughs) (laughs) On the weekend, video of me passed out (laughs) on the floor. (laughs) Like good, I guess. (laughs) I just want the weekend's old hair back. That's all I'm saying. With the the things hanging from his head. I just he just isn't. He's not doing it for me. He's he just he reads like self obsessed now, and I'm kind of over it. Abel is trying his best. Abel. Team Abel. What's his last name? Weekend. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's talk yeah, about... Yeah, let's talk about um, the actual book itself. Should we discuss the characters? Yeah, we should briefly go into some of the characters. Yeah. There are a lot of characters, but obviously the story revolves around Tara, Westover, and the Westover family. Yes. So... And I would argue to say Tara's relationship with Jean and her brother Sean more than yeah. anything. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so the dad's name is Gene. Yep. Um, well, his pseudonym, really, because all of them have fake names. True, true, true. Um, he is a big against the government type guy. Um, he's, like, definitely very into conspiracy theories. Um, I, he was not the most involved father. He was involved, but I wouldn't say, like, involved in the sense of being a good father. Yeah, he wasn't (laughs) supportive. Like, he definitely had his own ideals that he believed in, and those are the ones that he stood by occasionally, because he also happened to be bipolar, and so sometimes he would have, like, he would be very set on one form of thinking, and then we kind of switch things up really quickly and believe in something else. And so the entire family kind of has to scramble every time he has a change in thought or a change in beliefs. Yeah. I would describe him as an ultra-religious man who designed his entire life around religious doctrine, yeah. which was volatile itself because it just depended what he felt. Yes. There yeah. was a time in the story at the beginning, part one, where he removed all dairy from the house yes. and they ate cereal and yes. oatmeal with molasses yes just because there was a part in the bible i didn't fact check him on that <laughs> some dairy was bad i don't yeah really i think exactly. it was like that it was like gluttonous or something and yeah. so he had it removed but then he would also do things like they wouldn't have cell phones then all of a sudden like cell phones were okay and it was okay to have a landline and he was mm-hmm. like yeah it's fine whatever yeah and so like he would be strict on certain things and then like forget that he was being strict about it because he was no longer in a manic state over something and they kind of just had to figure out what was okay and what wasn't he also had a big thing about the um like the judgment day like when it hit what was it 2000 like yeah the turn of the y2k century. is what it's called yeah he was like very 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 confident that the world was gonna end and it was really interesting to see like his reaction when it didn't mm-hmm. um because i think he really felt like I don't know, like, his belief system was, like, off or there was something wrong. He was definitely, like, he had been preparing them for a long time. Like, all of the unnecessary things he was doing, the, like, canning of a bunch of fruits, the, like, keeping an entire, like, den where they were storing things was, like, in preparation for that. And then 
nothing happened. Yeah. Um, and that's that idea of like having a storage shelter also is not unheard of in the Mormon religion. Like her dad was definitely um, her dad like is a Mormon, but also had like kind of just very conspiracy theorist beliefs on top of that. But the idea of having a bunker in preparation for the day of judgment is something that like is believed in the, within the Mormon religion. So in that sense, he wasn't like completely off his rocker and that depends on what your beliefs are on the Mormon religion. But um, yeah, he was a little crazy. Yeah. So that's dad or Gene. Um, another important character, I guess not character, Part of Tara's life is her mother. Yeah. Um, what was her name again? You said Faye. it. Faye. Faye? Yeah. She grew up in a household where her mother was, like, very obsessed with, like, the appearance, like, her appearance outwardly to other people. And they lived in, like, a very perfect, in quotation marks, home. But um, she didn't really subscribe to that entirely. And so like Gene came along and he felt like very rebellious and different. And so that's how she ended up kind of being a part of his life. Once she got to be a part of his life though, I think she started to quickly realize that this was not exactly what she thought it would be. Like the first thing that we hear about in terms of developing her character is that she becomes a midwife. She starts to begin that training because Gene thinks that that's the best thing to do because it's like good for her to do as a woman. And it also means that they're not dependent on the government. So she becomes a midwife. And again, it is dangerous. So she trains for it and then witnesses some pretty like extreme pregnancies that go kind of wrong. And it like drains her a little bit, but she also gains this like confidence over herself, like this ability because she's like making money and like doing something and putting herself to a practice. She like gains this like confidence but she's still doing it for jeans like (laughs) yeah because the reason why she did in the first place was because gene the family they didn't want to rely on the government or to go to hospitals to deliver children and keep in mind there's like nine of them seven of them something like that some crazy amount Mm -hmm. how many of them that i'm trying to remember how many she said that actually had a birth certificate I think it was, I don't know. Like, very few, Yeah. Right? So when we say that they were anti-establishment, if you haven't read it, they were very anti-establishment. Yeah. Most of them didn't complete their full educational path, and very few of them had birth certificates, and don't even, like, get started with vaccinations or going to the doctor for mm-hmm. checkups. Mm-hmm. They were very, like, they were very much so completely trained at home. Um, they learned skills that the father believed were important, but that like the father and mother both believed were important. For example, like the girls kind of helping the mom out with both midwifery, but also with like herbalism, which she gets into later on. She gets into herbalism after the car accident because she couldn't be a midwife anymore. Oh yeah. That's what it was. So there was an accident. It's relevant because it's the transformation. It's like one of the transformative events in the mom's life, but basically the whole family gets into a really bad car accident And she suffers injuries to her skull and has, um, like, internal bleeding. Yes. And because of this... And they didn't go to the hospital. The the whole family started calling her raccoon eyes until years later, Tara realizes that those are the symptoms for brain damage. But because she couldn't be a midwife anymore, she takes on herbalism and goes into this deep dive into what she calls muscle testing, where Mm -hmm. she's, like, feeling the energy of things and orients her life around making decisions based off of these feelings she has. And she does really well. 
Yeah. Like, does really well like in, in her terms community. Of, yeah. She ends up being, like, kind of a girl boss in a way because yeah. she runs this entire business for her and the dad. Like, that's how they make a large portion of their money is people come from everywhere to be, like, have an energy reading from her and have these tinctures and, like, there's something to be said about homeopathic medicine. Like, I, I fully was buying the whole herbalism thing. Like, I was like, yeah, for sure. Like, there are certain things, like, certain oils that are good for things, not as a substitute for penicillin. Um, <laughs> but there are good things. But I think she loses me when she gets into the energy readings of, like, being able to do muscle testing. Um, let's fly through the rest of these. So there's a handful of children. We have <laughs> Tara, um, which we will be discussing mostly. But the relevant children, sorry to the other ones, um, Sean, which is the abusive second oldest brother. Yeah. He doesn't really have much of a path in life. Like he leaves, he leaves Idaho, does his own thing for a while, then comes back and then starts to abuse Tara. And then we later on learn that he does this to all of the other daughters in the family or yeah. Audrey. Audrey. Um, And then we have the other son, Tyler, who is one of the sons who actually go to college before Tara goes to college. Tyler grew up. Being different than the rest of the family, Tara explains one of his quirks was like he organized pencil shavings. Oh, he yeah. He put pencil shavings into matchbooks and organized them by the year he sharpened his pencils. Which, like, thinking about it from like a, and I'm not a therapist or an expert in trauma by any means, it would make sense if you're a child living in like a state of literal constant disorder to want some form of organization and planning. Like she talks about it later on, but her like first boyfriend is like, your place smells like rotten vegetables all the time. Their stuff is everywhere. They have no sense of like, like organization. And it makes sense to me now that I'm thinking about it, that he does things like that, that he has like all of his records organized and like his room is super neat. He just did not belong in that situation in the slightest. Yeah. We also have Audrey, who is one of the daughters, like we mentioned. But most of the other children aren't mentioned that much. Um, They're not talked about, really. And I think it just has to do with her not having, like, big monumental experiences with them. I, it, I, I'm i interested in sometimes, like, I want to, I'm thinking about how the other children kind of experience things. Because each one, like, Tyler's entire process of having to, like, go to college and do all of that like he paved a way and then like Tara followed and paved her own way it's like how she did things and so I think it's Richard who's the other one with the PhD like I'm curious as to what his experience was like getting out of that home as well like was it easier than the first two because Tyler is a man so it was like difficult for him to do it but it made a little bit more sense to the dad when he was like I'm gonna go to college but when Tara did it, it was, like, very difficult for her to pave that way as a woman. So I'm interested what Richard's experience was, but they don't really talk about it, so. Yeah, interestingly enough, though, her mother has a book. I don't know if we talked about this. No. Her mother wrote a book after the huge success of Educated. Oh, my God. Called Uneducated. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I haven't heard much about it other than it was her response to it. I don't know if it's, like, she was trying to, I guess, rebuttal from a lot of the things because although at the start of the book, she says that she's not really making a statement on like the quality of life that is right to live or like the type of life that is right to live or a statement on religion versus education. She has a preface about that at the very start of the book. 
But I think that's one thing that uh, Westover does really well is that she provides all the details of her life in excruciating detail without really taking a side. She lets us into her traumatic life and it hurts reading it. Yeah. And but it's an amazing read. Yeah, it's I <laughs> I've never seen something that's so like fleshed out and also objective as like she describes situations where she is literally getting beaten to near death and she is trying to be as separated from the situation as possible. I will also say that one of her coping mechanisms was dissociating. She talks about feeling like separate from her body a lot. And I think that that's part of the reason why she's able to describe such things in those details, because she, in a lot of scenarios, takes herself away from her body and acts in a way that she should, like the way that she feels like she should. And I think that's why she's able to notice things um, during those traumatic experiences. But I agree. And the other the other thing she does to make that objective is be like, this is my point of view. My brother had a different point of view. My mom had a different point of view. And she has these footnotes where she's like, I asked about this. I just want to be clear. This wasn't my firsthand experience. This is what someone else told me was what happened. Even at the end, if I had a father like hers or a brother like hers, like even at the end, she's like, this is how I was able to love my father. And she doesn't say like, my father is a piece of shit or a complete asshole that ruined my life for these many years. She's like, this is what he did. This is what, how I believe, like, I grew from this situation. And that's insane. That's, like, a level of maturity that maybe comes from experiencing years of trauma. I don't know. But, yeah, I agree. It's it's pretty stunning. Like, it's definitely something. I, I've never read such a coherent recount of someone's traumatic experiences the way that that was. Yeah. And it spans from maybe when she's seven up until she's acquired her PhD to the present day. So it's a good maybe 20-ish years. Go ahead. I was going to say that you see the amount of like control that they have over her. Like the fact that it extends all the way to her getting her PhD is she goes to college and they still like her father lives in her thoughts. He lives in every decision that she makes and he's not there. It's a show of like the fact that she spent such a large part of her life believing wholeheartedly in this and believing in what her father believes that like she then goes off to university and does not understand why she's like saying the things that her father has told her and why it's so hard for her to do things like not take medication when she's supposed to. She has the access to it and the resources and she still like cannot bring herself to do it. So, And I think the book is more than just a coming to... Building Roman coming of age yeah. novel. I I thought starting off reading it that this is what we were dealing with, where it's like, okay, she grew up with a relatively strict family, and then she went to college, and then she started to isolate herself, and then happy ending. But um, spoiler alert: there is no happy ending here, at least not in relation to her her family, because she acquires her PhD at the end after going to BYU for undergrad, and then going to Harvard in Cambridge for a fellowship and for a PhD. Um, but to this day, she hasn't contacted her family. And she speaks on this at the end, but she realizes that this was the price for her education. There's a distinct line between the life she lived back in Idaho and the life she's living now. And her family is a reflection of that. She has four siblings, right? Correct? 
four siblings that required a PhD. Three that required a PhD, four that did not receive an education. Yeah. So it's like, it's like the, it's three, her is part of the three. Mm-hmm. So it's her and Richard and Tyler. Yeah. And then the other four that don't. Which is insane. Yeah. And she talks about like when the, when her grandmother dies, that like chasm in between them. Like there's three of them sitting on one side that got their educations and there's four sitting on another and they don't speak to each other. Like they're not really in contact with one another. And she definitely has it the worst, I think out of the three that do leave because she talks about how Tyler keeps his relationship with his father. It's not the same, but it still exists. But hers is like beyond repair. Um, She, and she also like, she loses her relationship with her mother too. Like she just really doesn't, she doesn't have any connection and it's, it's kind of horrifying, but it's also, Okay, so this is off topic, but I have friends that have not at all, not at all the same situation, but similar enough. And personally, I've always wondered why someone doesn't just leave a traumatic situation. Like if you have the power, why can't you disconnect? And I've talked to friends and they're like, but I love my family. And I I do believe in this religion and like, they are reluctant to leave. And I haven't understood that, but reading this, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Like that is, those are the people that you grew up with. And also like the religion that you believed in that whole time, those, not even just outside of the religion, like the, the things that her father had told her are the things that she like believed in for so long that you can't just cut a cord like that. It's not as easy as just being like, okay, I'm growing up, like my parents didn't let me go out, but now I can. So I'm a different person. Like this is so much more than her finding freedom. This is her like coping with the fact that she has those freedoms, I guess, or has that ability to even make a decision like that and leave her family. So it's definitely a unique take on something like that, but so I did not know anything about the Mormon religion at all, but my boyfriend grew up in um, Salt Lake City, Utah, and there are a lot of Mormons there. Um, and reading it, I I definitely had to, I told myself beforehand because I kind of understood this, that like that wasn't a reflection of the religion itself. Like I didn't want to read this and this trauma and be like, oh, this is what the religion is about. And I honestly, I did research afterwards because I didn't fully know to make sure that like, the things are separate, but I feel like that's one slight issue that I had with the book is like, she says, I think at a point that like, this is not the religion entirely, but I definitely was like, if you do not do research on your own, it seems like the Mormon religion is like all about things like this and like all about this horrible, like patriarchal society. And I don't know everything, but like, I don't think it's as extreme as this book paints it out to be. However, it is interesting to see like a, a household that is like not only religious, but to the point of maniacal, like completely crazy. And so I just wanted to make a note of the fact that those things are separate, but it was very interesting, interesting to see kind of like, I don't know, I grew up in like a privileged household and like everyone, like a lot of my friends believe in religions, but it's not, I didn't grow up in rural Idaho. Like I didn't grow up like in a small town with 50 people who like are all pretty religious and all very like strict about things. And so reading parts where he's like, oh, where Jean's like, oh, well, her skirt was way too short. Or when she leaned down, she wanted me to see like the inside of like into her breast or things like that. Like that, I don't know, that seemed like very far off to me or like the fact that they have these like group church services and they all know each other. Like that was a very different world that... I didn't fully have experience in, but 
it was it was definitely interesting to read. I wrote something. Um, one of my thoughts from just the book in general, and I think it echoes what you were just saying, is that educated provides insights into a world that you and I will never understand. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, took you thirty seconds, and it took me twenty minutes. <laughs> and I think oh, Tara does a really good job in painting her life in a way that mimics fiction, and it makes you almost forget that it's apparently possible to live such an insane life. Like that's real life. Yeah. But, There's probably seven occasions of people being near death. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler set on fire. Um, Sean fell from some wooden ladder. And no some, one did anything. Yeah, yeah. They didn't go to the hospital. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Take some of this leaf. <laughs> Is that wrong to say? Well, I mean, also, like, I really didn't believe it. But I was telling you earlier, like, they might have some. They might be onto something. Because the dad literally gets set on fire and survives. Yeah, he doesn't have, like, hands anymore. <laughs> he explodes. Man explodes. <laughs> like, literally is a skeleton. Like, all the skin gets burned off of his body skeleton. And he lives. And he fucking lives. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Like, much to every reader's disdain, he does live. Yeah. Which... And by the end of the book, I was really expecting to see, oh, when my dad passed away, I couldn't resolve the conflict that I had with him. No, that motherfucker's alive. <laughs> Man, still kicking it. And the, the thing is that... Um, as much as we want to hate on their lifestyle, like if you take it objectively, like at, maybe not just objectively, but if you look at their lifestyle with their mom doing all her herbalist type yeah. stuff and her dad doing sermons because of his experience being near death and saying how he saw God through that experience and the whole community going around them and praising them. I mean, it makes sense on their end for them to think that they're living a good life that Tara should as well. Do you know what I mean? Yes. My counter to that, though, is there is a certain level of brainwashing. Yes, fair. Yeah. That, like, they, it's not that the mother is unaware of the abuse that occurs. It is that she is kind of so, she is, I guess, so set on the fact that the life that she's living is the one that she wants for her kids that she ignores it entirely. I was trying to make a point earlier, though, and that was that going back to your point about real life, she, like, Tara really cements it by being like, this is the Randy Weaver story. This is the one that we grew up with. Also happens to be fucking true. Yeah, should we explain? We have to explain the Weaver story. Yeah, I don't... The Weaver story, there's three parts in the book. The first part is about Tara's childhood in Idaho, Second part is also, well, it's still about her life in Idaho, but then she attends undergraduate and jumps between her undergraduate life in BYU and goes back to Idaho, back home at Bucks Peak. And the last one is more about her cementing some of her relationship, um, the relationship with her family um, as she pursues education after her undergraduate career. But the Weaver story is one of the ways her dad essentially scares the family into doing what he wants, right? That's kind of it. That's It's it's like he's saying, like, if you don't do what I'm saying, you're going to get shot to death. Like yeah, someone's like, going to come for our family. And it goes so far to the point where he, like, has them run drills. Yeah. Where they have to, like, go, like, look for their backpack full of stuff. And, like, he has guns and things. And he uses that real-life story to convince them that they could die, too. Yeah, because... In the Weaver story, or the Weaver story that he tells, there's this family that he's in contact with, apparently, 
that are surrounded by the feds. <laughs> yeah. They're surrounded by the feds and a child gets shot. But what the feds are trying to do is get the children and send them to public school. Yeah. That was all it was. Yeah. So that, that was that was what um, Gene used to basically get the children to fear for their life and say, F the establishment. Yeah. But the actual Weaver story. Is that I think that the... Um, the dad was doing something that like the feds were concerned about what the dad was doing. And there was, they were like suspicious of some like fed, like, like a illegal activity. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember what exactly it was, but they had come there for that. And then he refused to leave the house and they asked him to leave and he refused. Someone came outside. Was it the son? I don't remember entirely. Someone came outside. They got shot because they thought it was him. And then the mother ran out to help. She got shot. So they killed like a big portion of the family of the Weaver family. Yes, and to to the credit of um, the dad, like what the feds did wasn't okay. Like yeah. what they did, that was like an accident. They did not mean to do that. Um, but he took that instance that, and that's I feel like with a lot of conspiracy theories, like it's rooted in a little bit of truth where something's like a little wrong, and they take it and they make it like yeah, this like is... we definitely didn't go to space, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the moon doesn't exist. And it's actually a ball of cheese. It's a ball of cheese. <laughs> so you're shit out of luck if you're lactose and intolerant. And if you think it's Swiss, then you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's definitely... It's always rooted in, like, something that seems a little factual. But he took that and he, like, made it this horrifyingly traumatic experience for these kids and made them feel like the government was coming for them. And if they went to public school, then they would be, like, brainwashed. And at any point, in any time, they could come for them and their mother... For no reason and because they're innocent. To their credit, like, I, they, like, they don't really, I don't, I read the Wikipedia, so it might not be 100% accurate, but they didn't really talk about what they were worried about in terms of legal activity. So that is also part of it. It's like, it's like a lack of clarity. And then you have people in rural populations that didn't get the education that they deserve. And <laughs> things like that happen, where they like base an entire family identity off of one conspiracy theory. Yeah. So, and it has traumatic effects in, for the children. Yeah. Because within the first part, Tara talks about her own memories being convoluted where she remembers some form of the Weaver story. Yeah. And then she's a part of it and her mother's a part of it. And then there's like a baby that's there. What doesn't make any sense in the timeline of her life. Oh, it's in a huge ass mess. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that she realizes in college that are like the story. Oh yeah. Um, I guess we should talk about when she like realizes that her, okay, I won't, okay, let's talk about her father being bipolar and then let's okay. talk about the other thing that she realizes. But, um, I think that that is absolutely freaking insane that she doesn't know that her father, like she has a feeling that her father is unstable, but she doesn't realize what's wrong with him. Until she gets to college and she's like, oh my god. These aren't just like sad spells that my dad has. She talks about when she's a child, like her father not being able to move. Like full depressive state. And then immediately after getting in the car and wanting to drive through the night. Which is how the accident happens that her mother ends up getting severe brain damage from. It's him quite literally being bipolar. And she's like in class one day. And they're talking about bipolar disorder. And she's like, shit. That's dad. <laughs> no, actually, she talks to her professor after. Yeah. As saying that this, my uncle has shown these yeah. symptoms. Yeah. And then he, the professor says, actually, that's really close yeah. to schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine growing up 
like that, thinking it's normal. Yeah. And thinking that you're abnormal for not being on the same page as your yeah. father. I don't know, just like crazy that she talks about like the fact that the effects it has on like children. Like the fact that children that are raised with like bipolar parents like have they're themselves like predisposed to mood disorders and also they like are they face like severe trauma and like live in a stressful horrible environment um and imagine like i don't know like spending 18 years at home like thinking that your dad's like fine and then realizing that he's like completely not lucid like he's just actually batshit and all those things that you thoroughly believed in are now completely called into question also interesting that she reads that and she knows that and then continues to live a large portion of her life still not being able to kick the ideas that her father has like instilled in her. Like she knows that they're not 100% like accurate, but she still can't convince herself to take antibiotics or go get surgery. I don't know. Like we all talk about like, I don't know, figuring out that your parents have flaws when you yeah, get yeah. older. Imagine figuring out that your parents has a severe mental health issue. Yeah. And we're only it. talking about the big picture issues yeah. with her childhood. Yeah. About her family believing in conspiracy theories. Yeah. Not taking them to hospitals and yeah. not having birth certificates. Yeah. But we fail to also mention that with that comes a family that makes their daughters believe that they are immodest for mm-hmm. f- for anything related to sexuality mm-hmm. and not having a feeling of belongingness when they want to pursue more than just getting married and having a child. Yep. And I mean, she then goes to college and faces the same sort of like discrimination where she's talking to a like a peer and she's talking about education and he's convincing her that she can't do the major that she plans mm-hmm. on doing. That like, that's not what she's supposed to be doing. Like she goes to college where she's supposed to get some sort of welcome respite for it. And she's still faced with like kind of similar ideas, which might've been good <laughs> because I shudder to think what would happen to her like sense of stability. If she went from that life to a college that was completely liberal like I, she went through an entire phase where even at BYU, she was like, these people are so immodest. Yeah. But we're talking about people who said, Oh, what time are you going to church? Yep. And what she claimed was immodest were like shorts that were maybe too short. Yeah. Yep. Like maybe it's immodest for at certain, at like for some groups of people, but it wasn't like terribly bad things. I yeah. wouldn't think. And like, I don't know, like types of food that they were eating, yeah. like caffeine or things like that. Like she, the stuff that she was like so horrified by is one fraction of what I saw the first year of college <laughs> that I experienced. So like I, I maybe it was best for her stability to be in a college like that. But even there, she still gets convinced that that's not what she should be doing as a woman. Like she shouldn't be pursuing a higher education. And I don't know, he like raises his daughters and the mother doesn't do that good of a job either to convince her otherwise. Like it really surprises me that her mother who came, who like ran away from a household where she was like forced to dress a certain way and look a certain way all the time, then turned that on her daughters and was like, you also like, your father wants you to be modest. So you have to be modest. You have to dress like this. And her mother wanted to go so far away from like vanity because her family was big on vanity that she had them dress in like just dirty old rags. But yeah, didn't even wash their hands up to use the bathroom. <laughs> their dad, their dad was like, "My kids don't have to wash their hands." He said, "What did he say? Like, if you don't pee on your hands, yeah, yeah. Why would you, you, don't, you don't have to wash your hands if you don't pee on them." When I read that, I was like, 
You are so right. I <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I was like, honestly, yeah, save the dolphins. No, for, for sure. <laughs> Maybe don't shake my hand after this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like she definitely, she like tried to go and dance, and her father ruined that for her. The mother like tried to support it, and then she went back on it immediately. Um, she. Like, I think her father would just pick and choose times to be like, this wasn't okay. Like, this was so horrible. How could they dress this way? And then her brother, Sean, takes that same idea and begins to kind of run with it, too, where he, like, notices her wear lip gloss or something, and he, like, calls her a whore. Um, so it's just a family of, like, people teaching their daughters that um, they're just not worthy at all. And, like, she taught – I'm trying to find a quote um, – there's one where she says, like, how could an inch of skin matter? But I'm trying to find the one. Oh, but no one had ever taught me the modest way to bend over. So I knew I was probably doing it the bad way. Like <laughs> the dad's like complaining about the the way that this woman like bends over to get her him. And she's like, I like, I don't know what to do right. Like, she's like, I can't move through a room without second guessing every movement that I have and whether or not it's the wrong way to move. And no one has told me what's right. Like, no one has prescribed to me exactly the way that I'm supposed to move and the way I'm supposed to act. So I'm scared to do anything because what if it's the wrong way? And like, I think that those are the effects of teaching a woman to be afraid of her herself, like not even her own sexuality, but just herself, mm -hmm. because everything that she does simply by breathing is wrong. And that extends through her college life too. Yeah. You would you would think as a reader and as her that if she escapes the life that she had in Buck's Peak, at least in a new environment, she would feel a sense of belonging. But she didn't have many friends. Mm -hmm. um, we could talk about the thing that she learned in in college. Oh, the yeah the racism. Oh yeah. <laughs> so she was sitting in on a lecture with the one friend that she made. Like, she makes a big deal about how nobody wanted to sit next to her because she was weird on everybody's <laughs> standards. I don't really know how else to explain it. Yeah. Um, but she found one friend, and she was trying to be more attentive and more active in class. And so she raises her hand and points to a word and asks the professor, what is this word? And the word is Holocaust. And that point in the book, as I remember reading this in the car and, like, gripping the wheel... Because at that point, I realized that she grew up in a life that had no understanding of the rest of the world. At that point, everybody looked at her and the professor goes, okay, that's not funny or something like that. Yeah. There, he, he's like, I really didn't eat this today sort of thing. Yeah. And she just has no, I, she missed, she missed an entire part of history, arguably all of history, because then she learns about like all of the like slavery and then the 50s and how it's not okay that her brother calls her the n-word when she like gets dirt on herself mm -hmm. um she doesn't know that that's not okay growing up and like it's it's racism but it's also like her brothers don't know that it's okay to not say that word and then her father doesn't really know that it's not okay to say that word so they're all like unaware of all racial tensions and all things that are bad in the world. And it is so ironic to me that they live in this fear, this like imaginary fear of the world being horrible, but don't actually have a real scope or understanding of the ways, the actual ways in which the world has been horrible. Um, and she like comes back home and Sean like 
And Tara, sorry, sorry. Continue. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, and I was going to say, and Tara is the one who has to pay the consequences for the life that she was raised in. Yep. Because there aren't any consequences if you live in that bubble. But once you take that mindset out, she doesn't have friends. Her professor thinks she's trying to be funny or she's, I don't know, uneducated, which at that point she was. But after that point, her friend didn't sit next to her anymore. And she struggled in classes. She was already struggling in classes, but now she struggled alone. Didn't even know that she had to read the textbook. She only looked at pictures. And it's insane to think about that because for us, we we went to school, right? Yeah. Things that I, it's hard to even say like things we take for granted, it's just things that are expected. But when you zoom out to a world, a rural world, you don't really see that this was actually a possibility yeah. for generations to live like this. And it, and its impact on the children. Yeah. Like it, it, the fact that she had to learn how to learn is. Yeah. Learn how to learn. <laughs> she like, I, and I, I wonder like, and I know that her brother is the one that helps her kind of get um, the score that she needed on her ACT to even get into college. But it's just so crazy to me that like the entire story to me is insane because she manages to get into BYU, which is arguably like a good school with very little, like, very little understanding of what she's supposed to do in school and what she's supposed to do to learn. And then she gets there and everyone's like on a different planet than she is. And she's has to like learn how to do everything on her own, but it's not just like studying. It's taking care of herself as a person. Yeah. And paying for things and paying for things, paying for college. And I, there is that whole part of her um, and the Bishop as we know um, being able to like take money from him. Like she, the bishop who is Mormon being like, you need to take money from me because you have to pay for these things. And the environment that you're in is horrible. Like here's this person fully in the religion that she's like a part of and believes in being like what you're doing, like what you have grown up in is horrible. Like, please take the money. And she still refuses to, she tries to figure out how to take care of herself and learn how to hold like three different jobs and like ignores ulcers and toothaches and broken toes and everything possible that could go wrong and just has to learn how to like be an adult and that's not to say that she didn't take care of herself when she was younger because in a lot of ways she did emotionally definitely she took care of herself but this is the first time she like has to experience the real world and she is completely alone in it no part of her gets assistance and that's really really sad that is really sad um i was gonna say that i found like a line um, about the whole Ember thing, like never again would I allow myself to be made a foot soldier in a conflict I did not understand. Mm. And I feel like that's the first time where like everything opens up to her in terms of what she understands about the world versus like what the world is actually like. And she's basically rejecting the fact that her father has told her all these things that are like, like all these things about the world and all these things about these conflicts that he has with it that she didn't get and still wholeheartedly believed and then she has to sit there and understand that that's just completely wrong there's one thing to have like imposter syndrome and be like i don't belong here it's another thing to be like i don't understand i'm not even at the same level of understanding about of the world as the people around me are this isn't like i'm not as smart as them this is like i i missed 20 years yeah like so, i do not belong mm -mm. at all that is insane yeah all right, so I guess what we want to do now is talk about just kind of like 
I guess, volley some questions back and forth and talk about the novel more so in, like, themes and thinking about it more in depth rather than just discussing plot. So I have a question for you. Yes, questions. Um, how do you think some of the things, like, in terms of not just the abuse, but just the way uh, Tara's life went along in terms of education, how do you think it relates to you in your own personal life? Uh, he had to sit crisscross for this one. Yeah, I'm saying crisscross. Applesauce. <laughs> did you know that applesauce is a sub for eggs? I didn't know. Yeah, that. I knew that. Oh. You know what else is a sub for eggs? Like flax seeds and Chickpea. water. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, flax seeds flax and water. Seeds? Isn't um, flax seeds the ones that go boop? Yeah, well, chia seeds are that. But flax seeds, I guess, work better because chia seeds are a little more, like, crunchy. Um, but you... <laughs> My breath tastes smells like garlic. That's disgusting. I didn't even taste any garlic in it. I, I put four cloves of garlic in that. Oh, yeah. So, for context, yeah, Zamina made... <laughs> <laughs> She made pasta. Garbage. <laughs> um, I definitely sold this recipe for my roommate um, in the sense that she makes vegan alfredo, but she makes it a fuck ton better than I do. Um, I have been trying to sub in beans. You can't just curse on every sentence because I'm it makes sorry. it difficult too. Okay, I'm you, sorry. You okay, so my roommate. Okay. Sorry, over. <laughs> I don't want to deal with with my mom asking me, I'm oh, sorry. Your, your, your friend has a potty mouth. Like what? Now That's what she like, said to you? No, maybe. <laughs> no, she did, she did. No! It's possible. Oh, now we don't know what the truth is. I'll start crying. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, for context, um, I made Cohen some pasta with some fake vegan Alfredo and I stole the recipe from my roommate in the sense that she like makes a vegan Alfredo, but she makes it much better than I do. Um, and she definitely doesn't try to like sub in weird tofu and beans and things, but I put in garbanzo beans last time and now cannellini and it didn't taste good. A can of cannellini. A can of cannellini. Can, can lini. It was bad. It was, it was bad, good. Right? It was. It wasn't it was, bad. Whatever. They had a lot. As of long as you put in lime in it and then like salt and pepper, that's yeah. like half the flavor. And a lot of yeast. Have you tried cornstarch to make it thicker? And well, see that's yeast? see that's why Alex's is better than mine is because she uh, makes a roux. Well, a lot of reasons that it's better than mine, but she makes a roux with like I'm assuming cornstarch is in a roux. Um, I don't and, know what a roux is. Okay, I don't know really either, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, I thought it was funny. That's the only rule I know. Oh, <laughs> can't take that seriously. I was like, why is he whistling? I know. I saw like three emotions flash on <laughs> your face. Um, but she uses a roux, and I think that has cornstarch in it, and so it makes it like thick and creamy as opposed to like beany. I think yeah. I was thinking that the the granules, <laughs> the granules are from the beans, but I think it's from the yeast. Mm-mm. No, it's not from the yeast. It's from the... It's from the beans. And you know what? I know it's from the beans because I made it with the garbanzo beans. It was so much worse. It was uh, so bad that Aaron okay. was like, this tastes like a little bit like dirt. Like a little bit like soil. And it was like the granules from the... Uh, the okay. First of all, garbanzo beans are good. Well, yeah. But the thicker the bean... The thicker the bean... The, the harder to preen. What is that? I don't... Like when you preen, like you fix things. Anyway, my breath now smells like garlic. And that I was, was wondering how, that we, got was to how we started. That was how we started this conversation. Okay. But you asked me. 
I asked you how this relates to your life, and I feel like a lot less on the abuse side, but definitely in like the how she looks at education side, I think could relate. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me go find that. I like the way that she defines education. And my favorite part about books are the very last page or paragraph okay. of books. Just because this is the time for over. authors. No, no, no. Because <laughs> authors can really shine. Like if, if I forgot everything and I needed to go to the very last page for a refresher, like this is your time to show me. Um, I'm going to read what she defines education as and then I'll speak on it. I can find it. Okay. I worry that education is becoming a stick that people use to beat each other into submission or becoming something that people feel arrogant about, she said. I think education is really a process of self-discovery, of developing a sense of self and what you think. I think of it as this great mechanism of connecting and equalizing. And I definitely think that in my life, like 22 years, oh, wait, yeah. how old am I? 21 years old saying in my You're life. You're almost middle age. I know. Where's my crises? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to ask that one. <laughs> uh, um, I definitely do what um, Westover says that what people do. Like they use education as a stick to beat into people. And I think that was one of the ideas that really made me think about being a college student and being in a community or around a community of people who are like-minded, even though we're from various backgrounds, like we're all here for the same goal of going for a higher education because we think this is the way to live. I think with that mindset, you often um, draw a line between people living the right way and people not living the right way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, and so I find, I found myself at least while reading this book and a little bit before judging people in my mind when they say that they think that college isn't the way to go or that college is a scam because college is my life. Yeah. Right. Like I value my education. I value how much effort I put into things. So when people say that they don't want to go to college or that they, that college isn't worth it. Yeah. I would judge and like use it as a stick to say like, no, you're not doing this right. And I feel like something that I was craving in that, in the novel was not even the novel. Um, but in the, in the book was that she, get her education that she get her phd that felt like like in my head i was like that's the happy ending and it's interesting to see the perspective of like yeah she fully did but just because she got an education doesn't mean that she like had a happy ending or that things worked out for her like it just was a part of her life and she wanted to pursue it but i think that we do really think of college getting into college going through high school getting good grades doing all of that is like this is this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is the track that you're on. And if you're on this track, you are guaranteed success. Or even rather, if you're not on this track, you're guaranteed that you won't be successful. Mm -hmm. Like that's the point that we're at right now is that like maybe you won't get a job if you get a four-year degree. But you know how you definitely won't get a job is not getting it. And that's not true by any means. But it's just the mindset that at least growing up I had and that might have to do with having the parents that I did, but I feel like now really like in society, it's not just, Oh, my immigrant parents made me want to work hard. It's like everybody thinks that college is the way to be successful. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in terms of education, I agree that that is the most relevant portion of it that I saw as well. But I also, I can't imagine being an outsider the way that she felt like she was. She was saying that like she was, she started off as an outsider and what she had to learn how to do was go from being an outsider to being a person that 
felt like she could be like she had to learn how to do school before she could even learn yeah um and that that to me is crazy because we go in and like everyone's like oh okay well you need to change your study plan a little bit Mm -hmm. but imagine like coming in and being like i don't i don't she didn't know she was supposed to read a textbook she was like oh yeah i looked at it she's like yeah i saw the pictures and then her one only friend was like did you read yes did i what her one only friend that like almost abandoned her because she didn't know what the holocaust was yeah I don't know. It's crazy. Um, you can say something, but I, I, I definitely, I also want to talk about like the emotional stuff. Mm. I was just going to say that I think there's no doubt that the life that she lived allowed her to survive. You know what I mean? Like it was because I think it's like chicken and egg kind of a thing yeah. where she had to live the life that she lived because she was born in that type of family. But the resiliency that you need after cutting yourself, working on the farm, working with scraps and, Having your 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 mother get a concussion on like a Tuesday, yeah. Your your brother falling off a ladder, going to the hospital for breaking how many bones, getting a concussion as well. Your other brother lights on fire. Yeah, and then your father yeah. having I don't know his. I don't think I. I, I don't know what the, happened. The, the injuries that the burn injuries that she described that he had. He was not a person. Yeah. Like, I don't know how he survived that. She was like, I couldn't see. She could see through his hands. Yeah. And could see, like, his ligaments and his tendons. So that that type of lifestyle, like, you wouldn't get that through a formal education. So I don't know if that's... Of course, I'm not saying that everybody should live that lifestyle in order to get the, the grit required to make it in life. But there is no right answer, in a way, like, related to what you can handle emotionally and physically. And, of course, that has repercussions and why she needed counseling. But in the end, like, it's not all lost. Yeah. I mean, she learned strength, but I I think that there's definitely a sweet spot and you don't know what the sweet spot is ever. Like the amount of like difficulty that you have to go through and the stress that you have to go through in order to like be like, be able to deal with life situations normally. Like you don't know what the good sweet spot is. And unfortunately it was completely in, the wrong direction for her in the sense that like, yeah, she learned how to work. Like she learned the value of the dollar for sure, but it was because she couldn't afford to get her teeth fixed. Like it was because she spent months having medical, severe medical issues that she couldn't get examined rather than her like eating ramen for a week. Mm -hmm. Like when we go through stressful situations and this is speaking from a place of extreme privilege, it's like, oh, I have to figure out how to make do with this amount of groceries for this week. And that is the level of stressor that is pretty good in terms of preparing you for like budgeting and doing adult things. But the level of duress that she was going through left her with like long lasting psychological change, like issues that I, I, I didn't foresee an ending where she did forgive her family in the yeah. sense, like all of the things that had led up to that and something that I still don't understand. And like speaking from a place of like having had some trauma growing up, but not an excessive amount I still have, like, I still am going to go to therapy and talk about my parents sort of thing. Mm -hmm. She was so kind to their memories and to their, like, history that she was writing down throughout this novel. She speaks about a letter that she writes to her father, and she says that she feels immediate guilt afterwards. Like, she's, she's, like, fully, I think, in Harvard at this point. And she Mm -hmm. writes a letter to him, and she's saying, like, you're mean, you're horrible, this was terrible of you to do. And she's like, and I look back on it and I think that that was brutish and rude and didn't was not useful. And it's like the fact that she is considering someone's feelings who was 
horrible. Not only to her, but abusive to her mother, abusive to her sister. Like, that was a person that, when she had that conversation with her mother, where she was like, this happened to me, and her mother was like, oh, Sean's doing the same thing to his wife that your father did to me. How can you then find it in your heart to write write this about the stories and not paint him in the most gruesome, horrible light possible. Like that, the way that she was able to get through that trauma and reason it and be objective is crazy to me. The weird part is when you have parents that don't hate you. Her dad never hated her. The thing is that he thought he knew what was best for her. And I think that's why she can't, she doesn't paint him as the villain per se, because in his own mind his bipolar mind frankly he was doing things for her like he offers her a single blessing that will relieve her of all of her sins when she's in harvard and say like this is the hard reset you need yeah so she can't hate him because he never in his eyes he's not doing anything wrong yeah you know yeah like it's wrong for him not to consider what she's saying but if he never went out to attack her himself like he'd offer her money he helped pay for her dance classes and there's still, like, the details in that where he's like, okay, you can't go to dance class anymore. But when she came home saying that, like, I don't think I can go to college anymore for undergrad, he was like, we'll make it work. And so you balance between my father, he's not a good person, but yet my father loves me. Like, what? how do you write about that, man? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that part where she says, like, he hugs her and he says, I love you. You know that. And she says, I do. That has never been the issue. Oh. Oh, man. And those are the last words that she said to him. Not that she's wearing rose-colored lenses at all about the situation, but it's the forgetting the details sort of thing. And that, again, goes with the whole theme of, like, how history is written and how we remember things. But when you're in an abusive, like, situation, you have a tendency to remember the good because she had to spend 18 years of her life remembering the good so she could get through the bad. That she... Tell, she says that she rewrote parts in her journal that like when Sean was abusing her, she would rewrite things. She'd be like, no, that didn't happen mm-hmm. just to convince herself. So she could think of the good things and not consider the bad. And I agree. It's like at the end of the day, like, yes, her father, her father was a horrible person and that's not defending it. But he also was either schizophrenic or had bipolar disorder. So occasionally he was really nice to her yeah. and he never did anything to directly like he didn't do anything that deterred her permanently at all. Like he didn't stand in the way enough for her to not be able to do it. And maybe you could argue that someone with less resiliency than her, he would have deterred her completely. And maybe she was strong and like really wanted this. So it didn't matter, but he fully had the power as a parent to put his foot down completely and say, I don't really care. You can't come to college. When he said you can get out of my house and the mother was like, Oh wait, I forgot her age. She's actually 16, so we can't kick her out of the house. He could have still kicked her out of the house. Yeah. Or he could have said, I'm taking all the money. I'm not paying you. Like, there were so many ways you could have made things worse. But, like, the number of, like, horrible things that he had done to her just added up. And, like, I know that she's trying to write it from the sense of, like, this is what she was thinking, too, while she was writing. Like, she does it with Sean where she's, like, he was, like, she paints him out to be a good and a bad guy throughout the novel. Like, obviously, at the end, when he tries to tell her he's going to, he tells her he's going to kill her That's and hire an assassin. He, after he murders his dog. After right? he slits his dog's throat and then puts the knife in her hand and says, you might as well do that yourself or I'm going to do it for you. Actually, he said, I'm going to do something worse to you if you don't do this to yourself. But there are parts where, for example, when they're in that scrapyard and she's working the machine and he's like, you are absolutely not going to make her work that machine to his father. 
one could say that that was just a struggle of power between a guy that was like 25 and wanted to be the man of the house and him telling his dad, telling his dad what to do. But also he stood up for her. And then they'd like go see movies and hang out. That's how I read it as. And I yeah. think the the conflict that I have on how much I should hate Sean yeah. and how much I should hate her father is yeah. the conflict she has. Well, her conflict is like 1,000 times yeah. more, but yeah. I think she does a beautiful job painting that. Yeah. And because also, I, I don't, I can't settle that myself. Like I, yeah. I dislike them very much, yeah. but I don't know what to do with that conflict because he supports her. Yeah. Like Sean supports her at some point and her dad pays for her. Yep. Her, her classes like what do you do with that but he also says things like to her brother well if i want you out of this family i could do it in a second just ask tara and it's like i, I think that a question that comes about is like how much can you blame someone that's dealing with mental illness for the actions that they like take yeah on things like how much can you blame her father when he had like parano- paranoid episodes? Like yeah. they were mental episodes. It wasn't like he woke up that morning and was <laughs> wanted to be mean. He was having a full episode. And if perturbed, when I'm having a panic attack, I'm not the nicest human being in the world. It's not at all in the same caliber. But I can't imagine what it is to like fully believe your paranoid episodes or fu- like be fully depressed and unable to move and then manic immediately afterwards. How much can we hate her father? And I'm sure she feels the same way for those things. Yeah. I, that's not something that I don't think I have yeah. enough knowledge to touch, but yeah. what we can discuss is her mother because her mother fully admitted that, here, um, here. Yeah. that he did have some form of bipolar disorder. I don't know if she actually says bipolar. She does. She, she does. says his bipolar. Like, that's what she says. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So she admits it at a certain point and sides with Audrey and sides with Tara. Right? Yeah. And then after that, when they address the fact that Sean is abusive, and then once the father, Jean, takes Sean's side, she t- totally flips. So... Well, I will say that I think that... um Tara does paint her mother in a more negative light than she does her father in a lot of ways. And I think Mm. it is under the same thing of like, she knew her mother was within her senses. So when she talks about the situation she had with her mother, I think she's more betrayed by her than her dad or than Sean, because Mm. she like, she talks about how when her mother admitted to it, that was the first time she felt like a mother to her. Um, And then like afterwards, like there's no moment of redemption where she's like, but it's okay sort of thing. Like, it's fine. As she did with her father where she was like, I know that we could never work because of this. Um, but then I think she paints her mother as a coward, but I wonder if I would do differently if I was in an abusive situation, if I was in an abusive relationship where someone has taken every step to alienate me from everything I know. And like fully her mom wanted that. Like she wanted to leave the life that she was, but she didn't want, she didn't want an abusive relationship. She didn't Mm -hmm. want to not feel like she could leave this one. Um, She like her mother was surrounded by her husband and then her son. And they both are suffering from a mental disease Mm -hmm. and they're telling her these things and not, not like, not like having a conversation with her, but like telling her like, this is what you should believe. And you don't really have another choice. And even if she wasn't getting her butt beaten, you know, like it still isn't like that. That was clean. <laughs> he said butt instead of what I wanted to say. Yeah. It sounds a little weird when you say that. Yeah. It sounds a little weird when I don't use curse words. <laughs> um, um, but I don't know. Like, I, I, I think it's like, 
it's hard for me to even be mad at the mom. And I think she does take a negative stance on her. But if I was in an abusive relationship where I feel it felt like I couldn't get out, even when her mother's making money, even when she is the woman of the house, she stands up to him once. She stands up to her father once. And she says like, well, I'm not writing these letters. You can write these letters. And yeah. he says, that's woman work. And she said, okay, well then do husband work. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But then she immediately broke down afterwards. Yeah. Like, I don't think that she feels any more confident to stand up to her husband and her sons than Tara does. The difference is Tara got out and her mom yeah. couldn't. Yeah. You said you want to talk about the emotional side of yeah. education. Yeah. In the... um. Some of the things that she was talking about, the manipulation, the first time I read it through didn't, I don't know why it didn't hit me as hard as when I was reviewing it for this podcast, but the like, the parts where she would say like, I, this happened, but I didn't even believe it. Like when her sister was like, I know that Sean abused me, but when your own mother doesn't believe you, Mm. you don't even know if it happened. Like I understand that the theme of the book is like history and whose memories are right. But when it goes so far as to be like, when it goes so far as to be like, oh, like, I don't even believe, I don't even believe that the abusive things that happened to me were right. That's when it's like, I I don't know. I, I fully have been in situations in my life where I've reacted a certain way or been confident that something has happened to me. And for example, and this is not related to me, so I guess I shouldn't talk about it, but if you're dealing with like a sexual assault allegation and there isn't like the evidence, like her father, like Tara's father was like, Oh, show me the evidence. Show me the proof. You start to believe that it never happened. You start to really think that that abuse never happened to you. And I just, I don't know why the first time I read it, I was like, man, her brother's a real piece of crap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That hurts so bad. Go for it. Go for it. Um, Her brother's like a real piece of shit. Um, but the second time I was like, her brother is a manipulative, horrifying person who not only physically assaulted her, but sexually assaulted her. He pulled her shirt up, like took her clothes off and made her just lay there like that. I, the level and the extent of the abuse just, it was like in a very extreme version of being in an argument with someone. And then later on being like, wait, I, you definitely said that to me. And they're like, no, I didn't. And that's just, that's like easy because it's like, okay, it's something small, but magnify that to you threatened to kill me. No, I didn't. Is insane to me. It's just absolutely crazy that we can be that unsure about our memories that we don't even know if that happened. So that's all I had to say about that. It's crazy that we see this throughout the book. Um, Not even just related to her like abuse, but when we talk about the fire and she doesn't know who put out the fire, mm-hmm. that there's just so much trauma in her life mm-hmm. that she has to, she has to compare her notes with her brothers who also have different uh, recollection of the story than her sister does. And so now we're at this weird place where we don't know what's the truth. And I think that really speaks for the type of life that she lived. It makes zero sense whatsoever. <laughs> because it was being run by a man who was having paranoid and then depressed episodes. So it didn't make sense. It couldn't make sense. Like he would wake up and just be like, okay, today we're planning for the next apocalypse. We're like, again? I thought we had that That's one already. That's what would happen. <laughs> or he would make them like, like take scrap metal and like, I don't know what they were doing actually in the junkyard. Were they selling They that? were selling it. 
So they were at the junkyard and then they had like old cars and they would sell for parts. Like that's, that was the main money-making source. That was his big idea was to have them all do that. To have his like young kids go through that. And that was just, that was accepted. That's yeah. what they did. That's they what they did had that for to years do. too. They did that when she was in college. They did that for so long. No, they also did that before. Yes, like yes. Like her, her, the other siblings that grew up. Yep. So. Yep. I... I just, I, the things that he would make them do and like the defensive building character is insane to me. Like when he almost like crushed her, remember when she was in the, in the truck? Yes. And he was like, okay, you have to jump out of the truck while I'm dumping all these scraps. Yes. And then there's like this whole like three pair, no, like three pages worth. Like, 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 I'm going to see the light. Like I'm going to die right now. And then he's like, why didn't you jump out? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what happened? And she goes, oh, I got stuck. And he's like, oh, okay. And then that's it. Yeah. If that happened to me, I would talk about it every day until I died. Yeah. <laughs> I would tell everyone. Yeah, this was like your superhero. This is my like, <laughs> this is my like near death experience. Because it's not like, oh, that car almost hit me. It's like, I, she almost got crushed. Like that's a really near death experience. And that happened to her. Now yeah. think about her siblings who like, <laughs> fully got lit on fire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like if anyone has resentment towards the father like i can imagine it's was it luke it was luke who i'm laughing but it's actually really messed up he puts him in the car rolls it down maybe we're not 100 percent sure oh after he sets himself after he fire. sets himself like, after he like after luke gets set on fire he puts him in the car takes off the emergency brake lets him roll down towards the house and then saves the fire like he doesn't want there to be a forest fire so that's what he tries to prevent his dad did not take care of him one bit he threw him in a car and hoped for the best downstairs sends him to a 12 year old girl to take care of him if i came out of that i would have all the resentment in the world yeah but the thing is is that that's Having that resentment isn't even like a thought that they have because that's the life they live. And I think that is what's the most strange to me that I look at Jean and I look at fame like you, like, how can you as a parent do this to your children? But for them, like, that's like, yeah, like the kid has to survive. We have to take care of this fire because it's going to burn down the whole field. I'll never understand that. Yep. And I, I see a tie between this. It's, it's way more convoluted on that side, but a tie between this and relating to my own parents where like coming from a different country, they have a different set of problems and different set of issues that they value and that they address in their lives before and now. And I think the way that we struggle to understand why you would let your half set on fire kid just figure it out by himself, like that, that struggle that we have to explain that to get that explained to us is somewhat similar to what like parents have to do when they're trying to address our problems and we're trying to communicate with them. The priorities are different. I've, I priorities are very different in this book than our person, like my personal ones. But I agree. Like my my dad's priorities when he was twenty two aren't the same priorities that I have right now. And in the sense that, like, yeah, I mean, my dad had food, like he had food and clothes, and like he could live. But he was a lot more. Um, <laughs> He was a lot less supported than I am currently. And so I agree. It's like trying to justify the concerns that I have to my parents can be hard because their concerns when they were my age wasn't like, oh, I'm really not feeling good today. I'm a little anxious. Um, it's going to be hard for me to get through the day. It would be hard for my dad to get through the day if he didn't get all three meals. You know, like if he didn't get the food he needed, that would make it hard for him to get through the day. If he couldn't have a backpack 
and was just wearing like was wearing old shoes that he had had for years because his parents couldn't afford it. That's what would make it hard for him to get to school and therefore hard for the day. Mm -hmm. Not just like me looking in the mirror and not liking myself. That's not to say that my problems are less than his. It's just like knowing that in mid, you're right. It does make it easier to better understand. Like my dad has no resentment for his parents in the slightest. Like at no point was he like, it's weird that I have to like work in this coffee shop for my father every single day to keep things going. And I can't go do my schooling with like, with this going on. My mother doesn't have resentment for the things that happened that weren't okay in her family. It happened and they moved on. And I, you're right. It just didn't occur to him. And I, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're a generation where now we're trying to like, because we're trying to figure out our trauma a bit more than I think that my parents have ever given thought to theirs. We're also trying to figure out where the root of it is. And maybe that causes that like, I don't want to say blame, but like at least understanding the cause um, that I don't think it occurred to Tara when she was dealing with it. I don't think she was able to be like, okay, why did this happen? Like, why, why am I not okay? Why am I not comfortable showing emotions? Why do I laugh like a lunatic when like people see my brother abusing me until afterwards? And I think she still is in the place where I don't think she's ever going to get over the guilt. I don't think she's ever going to get over like feeling sheepish. Like she said, she felt around her father or feeling like just weak around him. I don't think that's going to change, but yeah, it's weird. It's just like a, like, I feel like I'm on very opposite ends of the spectrum with her and that's because i'm privileged like, yeah that's the reason but it's horrifying this book is v very very poignant like very very much so like i felt things in this book that i don't think i've felt in anything else that we've read so far yeah agreed i remember i mentioned this earlier but i listened to this on an audiobook for most of the time and i don't know if i've ever had like actual visceral physical um, reactions to listening to an audiobook. Like, this is as far off of, from reading as you can get, um, other than somebody telling you about the book. But I remember, like, gripping the wheel and wincing while I'm, like, driving down, like, I-4. <laughs> well, because how do you not grip the wheel and wince when you're listening to Sean twist her wrist behind her back so hard she can hear it crack? Yeah. Like, how the, the scenes are... I've, I've read violence. This violence is so painful. Like reading it is so difficult to get through because it's it's torture, I guess is the better way to say it. This isn't like violence. This isn't like, oh, someone gets stabbed and they bleed out and they die. This is like pure torture for years. Yeah, you have to from your listen family. to it. Yes. From the people that like you're not sure are a safe space, but sometimes you think they might be. I I, I it was it was really, really sad. Um I I don't know. I, I don't have anything else to say except it was really sad. Uh, do you want to talk about the one scene that made you like in the car be like... Yeah, do you have the quote? So this is when she's she's just arrived at Cambridge? Question mark? I think so. Yeah, oh. it's when she's in Cambridge, it's like her study abroad or whatever. Yeah, I think it's her study abroad. Is it her study abroad? Yeah. I Yeah, because she goes back yeah, to yeah, BYU yeah. afterwards. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, so when she's in Cambridge, you can read it out. Should we do the voices again? No, this one's too good. Okay. Okay, this is Dr. Carey. Okay. Okay. Um, so this starts with Tara and Dr. Carey are talking. 
after they've exited the rooftop of some building, mm-hmm. right? And she says, this is a magical place. I said, everything shines here. You must stop yourself from thinking like that, Dr. Carey said, his voice raised. You are not fool's gold. Shining only under a particular light. Whomever you become, whatever you make yourself into, that is who you always were. It was always in you, not in Cambridge, in you. You are gold. And returning to BYU or even to that mountain you came from will not change who you are. It may change how others see you. It may even change how you see yourself. Even a gold, even gold appears dull in some lights. But that is the illusion. And it always was. Dang, I need, I want a Dr. Carrie. I, me freaking too. We should all have a Dr. Carrie. We should all have a Dr. Oh, she especially needed a Dr. Carrie. But I was going to say this goes back to the, there's another quote where she says, like, I allowed my father to define me to myself. And that was like the worst thing. And it goes along that line of like, she has, as she has a lot of identities as a, as a woman and like as a, as a daughter and as a sister and all of those, all of the, the way she's supposed to act in all those positions gets defined to her. Mm-hmm. People tell her what she's supposed to be doing. People tell her how to be a woman. People tell her how she's supposed to be educated. And like, she just never got to define who she was. And it go like, it also like goes in the whole, like she was looking in the mirror and not understanding her emotions sort of thing. And so it's just so powerful for him to say to her like this respected person who she does admire to say to her like for the first time i think she's probably ever heard it yeah you are gold like this isn't this isn't because you're in this like fancy school this it has nothing to do with where you are at the time you as a person you're defined as a good person like who you are is not what your surroundings are sort of thing yeah it's beautiful it's yeah. wow I would cry. Honestly, I'm about to right now. (laughs) It definitely made me shiver when I first read it or I first heard it. Yeah. I don't know. I just can't imagine like leaving your home in Idaho, going to undergrad, not even knowing what, how to study ever. And you're thrown into the hardest education possible at university and then trying to figure out everything yourself with your incredible intelligence, getting into a study abroad in Cambridge and having somebody tell you that that's incredible and it's i know that she felt like an outsider there because she felt like an outsider for so much of her life she had imposter syndrome and for good freaking reason but had imposter syndrome all the way into working on her phd there's a point where she's like i am failing my phd i will not be getting this and it's like she just didn't feel like at home ever because she didn't feel like she belongs in those places and that has to do with um again the abuse that she had to deal with her her brother telling her like verbatim like you are not shits and you will not and never be sort of thing like that abuse was all to convince her that she wasn't good enough that she wasn't gold and to go from 18 years of that which was horrible and then to be thrown into this new place where no one really is around to be like you are gold you're wonderful except these like choice few like dr carrier like the bishop who told her you can't go home you can't be through that again mm-hmm. is like like those are those are formative people for her, but I, I shudder to think that like if she hadn't had that person, what she what she would have done, or like if she hadn't gotten the letter. Um, and I was talking about this earlier, but I didn't realize how important that letter was from her brother um, that was saying like I support you, mm-hmm. like me from Tyler. Yes, from Tyler. That was like I support you. This has been horrible. Like this isn't in your head, sort of thing. She would have failed her PhD if she did not get that letter. That was 
she was unable to leave her room or do things until she got that letter. And it's like, if he had decided that he was just going to avoid that situation, she just, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have been able to get through it. And maybe that wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. Right. But like, I think that, thank God she had certain people in her life that helped get her through to the end because it was not her parents. Yeah. And I still think even um, after Tyler helped her through that time, like there's still an immense amount of guilt that she feels for all of, all of this near the end of the book. She says that Tyler still hasn't like completely resolved his relationship with the family. And then she feels guilty because as if she's responsible for him doing the right thing. And so she goes through this counseling and she's in her, she's acquires her PhD and now she's been um, working for a couple of years. And I guess she had to relive this trauma by writing this book. You can sense that there's still a little bit of discourse in her mind still regarding this and regarding her relationship with her family. As to whether or not she was even like right in perceiving it the way that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I, you, I think that that is again why she writes it in the sense that like she's trying to take an objective stance rather than be like these are like this was a bad person or this person was a bad person. It's tied in a lot of things, but it also is because she's not one hundred percent sure. Yeah, I think something that's worth discussing is like it's obvious that her acquiring her education has fragmented her family, right? This reminds me of a podcast I listened to by Hidden Brain, and it was called Between Two Worlds. And it's about determination and hard work and sacrifice being the core ingredients of like the American dream. And what often happens for people escaping poverty or escaping hard uh, childhoods is that you have to choose between your home or your future. Yeah. And the podcast talks a lot about, I think there's like, they follow a case study. It's not really a case study, there's an example of some young gentleman who has to, who often finds himself choosing between like, like his old, his old family friends and his family or his new lifestyle. Okay. So just things like choosing where you live, either you're going to live close to home or you're going to not live close to home. And by doing so, you're fragmenting your past a little bit. Right. And I see that entirely within Tara and then her other siblings where you have to make a decision about what you want to prioritize and your family or your future. The podcast is about Dr. Jennifer Morton's book, and she's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and it's called Moving Up Without Losing Your Way. And Dr. Morton argues that an often overlooked aspect of climbing the socioeconomic ladder is that you leave your family and your friends behind. And so this is usually tied to, I don't know, it's a little bit different because it's usually tied to poverty and climbing away from poverty. And this is it. Like, educated is about that, but when you when you tie like trauma to it, it's a yeah. little bit different. But we see that concept played out through this novel. Um, when Tyler when Tyler goes off and pursues higher education, Tara feels left behind and feels betrayed, and she's like, ah, f Tyler. Like he's not my brother anymore. And I would argue that Tyler's is the best example of what you're saying because while he like dealt with abuse from his siblings and his father, it was not the same that like Tara or her sister dealt with. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he's the best example because his decision was literally to like prioritize school yeah. over everything. So keep going. Ed. No, yeah, you're right. And then I was just going to say that Tara too had to make that decision. But when her parents come to 
um, Harvard and they ask her, like, do you want to be blessed right now? Like, that is the moment where she says, I am choosing myself. Yeah. And it's really powerful. Yeah. It's I because she she's like, I could feel the words like coming up to say, yes, like, just do it. Yeah. Just but she knew that she just had to start over again. Yeah. Like it would be this constant push and pull and this cycle of and like she talks about it, but the cycle of like unnecessary hurt like over and over again it's just at some point like she had to put an end to it and it's sad that it's sad that it had to be that and it's sad that she had to choose between her home life and like poverty and choosing to climb the socioeconomic ladder i don't know um like i didn't listen to the podcast that you're talking about i don't know if there's a way to find like a sweet spot though like obviously when you make that decision you do have to choose a little bit too but I guess it depends on the level of poverty that you're escaping, right? Like if you're, if you're leaving something because you have to go to a new country or like escape a past because it can't follow you, then yeah, but. I, I don't know if there's a sweet spot and I, I can tie this not really to my childhood, but like my, my parents talk about it all the time. But one thing that the Philippines is really big on is that like you help your parents once Same. you, like once you become like successful once you become stable. So I'm sure for a lot of people, like I'm sure for a lot of um, families, they have to send money back home, which is fine, right? Like if that's what's established, that's what's established. But that's one part of the culture that at least my mom has spoken a lot about this, that she wants to kind of put an end to, right? Like this is your life. So you shouldn't feel responsible for us. <laughs> the one thing that they say is like, don't throw us in a nursing home. I'm like, true, I won't. Um, but other than that, they say, <laughs> but other than that, they say like, this is your life. So you should do what you want with your life. But it takes for some sort of fragmentation at one point, you know? Yeah. So it's either you adapt and say that this is the time where I don't want my culture to persist, persist in this way, or you get left behind and hurt. And no, I think yeah. it's whether you adapt to that. And I think it's inevitable that somebody will get hurt at a certain point. Yeah. I, I mean, and uh, going off of like the whole whether or not you put your parents even in a home, like, yeah, I wouldn't either. But that in and of itself is going to be a difficult decision that you're going to have to come to one day where it's like, if I can't really take care of them or if the house is full, what do I do? And like. No, they're good. They're they're like heckin' active. They're gonna be like skiing and then s snowboarding when for sure. When but ninety five. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm like your mom does listen to this podcast, but I'm just <laughs> at some point, <laughs> at some point, like you do have to make the decision for your parents, and like the decision that I guess Western culture has made is that eventually, like you do need to at least hire a caretaker, if not put them in a home. But for my parents, like. They send money every month to, um, like, my grandparents on both sides. But also, my grandparents fully live with their kids. Like, they fully live with their, like, one of my uncles or one of my aunts. And that's going to go on till they die. But I can imagine that when my grandmother is 85 and can't take care of herself, that's going to be really difficult and it's going to be a burden. And so we're still going to continue to make decisions that ultimately hurt, like, our, our, like our parents and you just, you do, you have to make that decision to fragment it. Not even in this case, to like pursue a higher socioeconomic status, but in some ways, yeah, like I, I think that when you're working a job and you're doing all these things, you're not going to have time to stay home and take care of your parents and you can't make that sacrifice. And it's just part of, I guess, moving forward, but I don't know. That's just the crazy thing about being a parent. I, 
where it's whether or not the parent is aware of it or open to that fragmentation, that split of the family, because it's going to happen, right? Like if, if you're going to, if you are, if your child is going to start their life, they will leave home. You can call that fragmenting the family. You just have to allow it as a parent. And it, it comes in like a spectrum in terms of like some parents, like my own, had to just accept the fact that I was moving across the country. But for a lot of other parents and like for friends of mine with like Arab parents, for example, they don't want their kid leaving. Like I, we have like, I, I feel like we know people that like had to stay near them, near their parents, like go to UCF and yeah, the people in order to stay with their parents because they weren't comfortable with them graduating and leaving and moving on. And they wanted them to get a job. They wanted them to be successful, but in Orlando, not in California, not in Texas, not in Washington, but like in Florida, right next to them. So I think even that comes in like variations of how much you're willing to let someone leave you yeah. and how much you're willing to let someone move on i don't because i don't know if like i don't know if it makes you less successful to get a job in orlando no it doesn't i think it's just about it it definitely this book is so dense because we can tie everything to it in terms of just childhood and growing up in general but um it's this is just the idea that you think you know what's best for your child and you may you may know what's best for your child but it's that same idea that you need to stay close here which may be a little bit selfish or like internally motivated because you want your child close but you may know what's best for them and therefore you want to pull them closer and stay here get their education and then stay at home save some money that may be true or you allow your kid to go out we just read a book though on when a parent doesn't know what's best for their kid yeah so like obviously it doesn't always go that wrong Um, but we just saw, we read an entire like autobiography of where a parent had no idea what was best for their kid and was more confident than they knew than my parents for sure. Like, I don't think my parents would ever be that steadfast in knowing that that was exactly the right thing to do for me as her parents were. Her dad was adamant that she was like, she was selling her soul basically. Um, and it's interesting. Like, I feel like, I don't know. I don't... (laughs) I don't think I could be a parent for that reason. Like knowing that no matter what decision I make, my kid's probably going to talk about me in therapy. <laughs> no, that's true. And I think um, two things I have about that. <laughs> number three things. Number one, that's true. Your kid will talk about your therapy. Yeah. <laughs> um, number two is that there's this really good quote and I'm going to butcher it and not cite it, but it's the idea that like children start off loving their parents and in the end, maybe they'll forgive them. Yeah. That's like, that's the quote summarize and squish a little bit but that's an ouchie um number two <laughs> oh god number two um i think talking about like parenthood from the perspective of a child is like a a, a whole discussion we could have 100%. but um i i heard somewhere that what often goes wrong with parenting is that if you or if the child has the expectation that the parent is some perfect individual who never makes mistakes then you as a child become frustrated as you grow up that they aren't what you need at the moment or they don't know everything and I mean I can I can recall from I don't know like high school college too that there's times where like what I wanted it's obviously what I wasn't saying but I would get frustrated at them for not knowing what I wanted and so now you have this balance between like why don't they know what I want 
And why? And then they're asking me, why don't you tell us? Like, we have this expectation that parents are perfect. Like, all-knowing. Yeah, but they're not. But I think what's the solution? The solution is that we need to at least go into parenthood saying that we don't know everything, but we will try. Yeah. And I think when you grow up, you have to realize that, like, I messed up as a person. Like, people are messed up and broken, and so are your parents. But... I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I'm literally crying. You're right. That's... I was going to say that you're really contributing the population control by talking about how difficult it is to be a parent. But I mean, that is the way to move forward with it is like to acknowledge the fact that like you are broken for lots of reasons, but like no one is perfect. And like the children that you have, like there is a way to ask for respect without asking for it by being just this perfect all-knowing person like Tara's dad and Tara's mom were like, you can ask for respect from your kids and still be flawed and still mm-hmm. like acknowledge that you're flawed. Um, you are the source of all their knowledge for the first maybe year of their life. But after that, like they're getting their knowledge from a bunch of different outlets. And so for you to be so naive as to think that like you can continue to act as a perfect person for the rest of a child's life is wrong. And I think that it saves a lot of like pain and heartache. If you enter into it, like you said, letting your kids know that you are flawed, that you make mistakes. And it's not only just okay for you to make mistakes, it's okay if your kids make mistakes. Yeah. Because I feel like, I don't know if you can relate to this, but like growing up with immigrant parents, something else that was an issue is I never felt like it was okay for me to make a big mistake. Mm. Like I didn't feel like it was all right if I misstepped. Um, and like, obviously not small things. Like my parents were not mean to me if I like Didn't cut an apple away. the wrong way. <laughs> I love that we both went for produce. That's funny. Um, <laughs> but it was more so like any sort of like life misstep that I made, I felt like wasn't okay that I too needed to be perfect because I saw my parents and they were perfect and I wanted to follow that. And I think that it also helps you raise a healthier kid. If you're like this, it's okay to, it's okay to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to look exactly, you're not going to look exactly like the blueprint that we want you to look like, or rather we don't even have a blueprint to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a lot to ask. And I think obviously like as we get, <laughs> as we, I guess, go from generation to generation, we become more aware of like emotional needs of a child rather than just addressing the physical needs as a parent. And perhaps like with Tara, like her parents thought that they were addressing her physical needs to the best of her ability, which honestly they weren't even doing that, but they just didn't really consider the emotional needs in the slightest. Or if they did, it was just to manipulate her emotions to get her to believe what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of tie it back in the book. So I stopped tearing up because I really had a, <laughs> I got a, this one of those spigots in my brain. Just <laughs> <laughs> Monkey wrench that shit shut. <laughs> Gonna push back that, t- those emotions, put that back. <laughs> Like plugging all the holes with like <laughs> with your fingers and your feet. <laughs> Maybe I'm so bloated all the time because I'm eating my emotions. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Therapy Pod. <laughs> Therapy Pod where we talk just to reveal our emotions. I really thought it wouldn't turn into this, but I had a feeling it would devolve um, in that direction. I mean, keep trying to bring it back to the book. Um, do we want to do like closing Closing thoughts, thoughts? and then... Do you have any quotes? I have a couple of quotes. Ooh, I have so many quotes, but I'll pick the good ones. Okay, I don't know if these are good. 
first off, um, give me a score one to uh, one to twenty-two. Okay, twenty-two because how old are you? I'm twenty-two. How old am I? Twenty-one. Are you sure? I'm older than you. Your birthday's in the summer. Is it summer yet? No, so I'm twenty-one. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I really had to think about that one. Um, I'm gonna be honest. I would dock it points. Like you dock points because there's something you would want better, right? Yeah. I don't know if I can name anything I would like better. Also, you can't because it's her life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna like, say that. That's a weird way to end that book. <laughs> nonfiction cheats, first of all, <laughs> because it'd be like, oh, this is how it happens in my life. I'm like, okay, you're right. Um, one critique is that sometimes it was hard to follow the timeline. Okay. That was it. I think that's just because I would tune out and then jump back in. Like I know generally the progression of the book is from her childhood and then university and then grad school and then yeah. Yeah. But I I, I can't tell you where what she did the summer of her first spring semester. Summer of. <laughs> <laughs> you pulling something out of your ass? Yeah. Critique. You're like I I can't I could, tell I you. Okay, I can't. <laughs> Um, also funny how in the book that you picked, you don't have any critiques. Yeah, because I picked perfect books. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm holding up a finger. It's a thumb. And it's not my ring finger, so. <laughs> um, I can, I can understand that because there were, like, we were talking about when she had which boyfriend and I had no idea when she had, like, the boyfriends that she did. Or, like, at some point near the end, she was dating this guy, Drew, that Drew. I forgot about. I was like, who? Because it was, he just didn't, wasn't a problem for her, so yeah. we just did not. And it also has to do with, like, she addressed things in more detail when it was formative and if it wasn't. Yeah. She'd gone through a whole experience where she had, like, a yeah. new, realized what a relationship was. So by the time, like, a steady one came along, you know, yeah. how many times are you going to be, like, we're in love and we're happy and I tell yeah. everything. Which is um, weird that she, like, throws him in. Like, I think they travel a bunch and then, like, yeah, and right, she, isn't that what it is? She throws it in also because she shows growth. Because she says, like, mm, yeah. I tell him everything. Oh, yeah, like, versus Charles. Yes. Where she, Charles. Where she literally let the relationship end because she didn't want to tell him. Yeah, but yeah. she didn't want to talk about her family. Yeah. Um, I, like, first of all, I can't kiss you. Um, second of all, I smell like rotten fruit. No, dude, I can't do that. If, if my boyfriend was like, you smell really bad. If he was like, you smell like rotting fruit. Also, your house smells like rotting fruit. And I think I smell like rotting fruit now. I'd be like, okay, drop me off then. <laughs> I, I don't think we can even put ourselves in this scenario. I, like, like compare comparisons aren't <laughs> even like worth the oxygen. I'm so spend. privileged. I'm like, <laughs> if my boyfriend said I smelled bad, <laughs> she's like escaping her abusive brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I didn't think much. I didn't think much about critiques. If I'm being honest, so yeah, because it was your book. You no, because because you didn't think to critique. Because you now, didn't think to hate it because it's <laughs> because now it's March nine when we're recording this part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, when did we read this book? Um, like December or November. It was before. It was November. Yeah, I had to definitely read it. Um, I'm trying to think of anything specific that bothered me. I would say, to be honest with you, there were parts that I didn't need to know. Like, not in the sense that they were overly disturbing. Mm. Just that sometimes she would reiterate another time that her father was, like, annoying to her. She went into detail, like, for example, on the visit that they did to Harvard. 
And she needed to go in that much detail. We could have, like, started at the point, like, they could have came and then we talked about the point where he was like, oh, I, like, I want to bless you. And she said no. Mm. But then we had, like, this entire day that happened. And maybe that's to show that, like, there are good times and bad times. But When they go see the waterfall. I, like, didn't, I didn't need to, I didn't need to know. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's a Um, dense book. Yes. It's a dense book. And she's talking about her life. And that's great. And I see that she's trying to give, like, she's trying her best to give an even account of good times and bad times. Um, but sometimes I was like, I don't really need you to go into detail on this part. I can skip through this. And I hate that when that happens in books, but it didn't happen frequently enough that I like, I didn't have it frequently enough that I closed the book and I was like, okay, that was annoying. As opposed to another book that we've read that was my pick and I don't want to talk about anymore. (laughs) Um, but otherwise I, it was really good. It was really good. And like in some ways relatable and in other ways, not relatable, but she did such a good experience job explaining what she was feeling that I could still envision and feel with her um, mm. what was happening. So I'm going to give it a, a 19.5 out of 22. Fair. I'm trying to think about anything else. What would you have wanted in the book is also another area of criticism. Um, I would have wanted to know more about what happened to Sean. Okay. I, I'm assuming that she glossed over it because I don't think that there was anything that formative that happened with him. I think he continued to be just not a good person, but I'd like to know more of what happened with Sean and like his partner because they spent such a large time talking about how he was abusive towards women. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, like, like, I'm just really surprised that he hasn't, um, killed his wife. Um, my other thing is I think, I think the idea that like, I guess it was because I was interested in like the Mormon religion or like the part of it that had to do with this book, but she doesn't really address it except to be like, these are all the negatives. Like as a result, I couldn't do this. And as a result, I couldn't do that. And she doesn't also doesn't really say like, for sure, like, this is not at all to do. Like, her parents are abusive, 100%, but I think religion, yet again, was painted in, like, a negative light. You think so? Yeah. I don't think she does an, enough to paint religion, in my opinion. Really? Yeah, there's, like, those... Well, she doesn't address it, but when she does, it's something that's barring her from doing what she wants to do. Yeah, Which yeah. is, like, she talks... Like, the only times that she really talks about Mormonism is to be, like... As Mormons do, they blame the problems of their children on their parents. Like, it was, like, quotes like that where I was like, mm. okay. Yeah, I've, I I interpret that more as, like, the extremism on her father's end. Okay. Like, he didn't really speak for Mormonism in general. I think okay. I would have wanted her interpretations and her... Because she was, like, she learned yeah. through, like, religious texts. But we don't really know how she feels about religion and no, how that don't. changes. So yeah. that's what I would want. Yeah. Yeah. To, like, address how she's, like, come to terms with faith and spirituality. Yeah, but there's just so much that... Yeah. I didn't realize that her mom was also Mormon. Ah. Uh, her mom was also Mormon. Because her mother's mother was Mormon. Mmm. Yeah. So it's, like, I guess that was probably the area. Like, I'm assuming that that was um, normal, but it was it was interesting that, like... I don't know, both her parents were, and, like, some of the things that he had talked about, like, preparing for Judgment Day mm-hmm. is definitely something related to that, but it, it just, it just, it felt like it was either being painted negatively or not at all, which mm-hmm. is 
just another time where like, I don't know, like, I feel like maybe books are secular now and I'm, I'm also not religious at all, but like, I, I feel like we don't like, it's a part of culture and we don't really like think about it unless to be like, oh, well that means that she has to cover her breasts or like, that means that like that person can only do this thing at this part of the time rather than being like, oh, this is a person who's religious that is fine with it. Yeah. So. The focus was definitely not religion. And then yeah. the... Like, there's that whole, like, first page yeah. that says, like, this is not, this does not represent the religion, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So yeah. it's mostly about her childhood. But yeah. I would be curious to hear more about that. And then more of how she comes to age in terms of, like, her sexuality. Yeah. It's there, but, like, we hear her growing up, <laughs> yeah. but not once she's grown up. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, after undergrad, do we get a lot? Like, is she, does she that? let people touch her after that? Because yeah. she was, yeah, she was so like, traumatized. Yeah. So that's, an, right? Yeah. I don't remember anything after, like, when she started college and then she saw people wearing short shorts. Yeah. Like, that was the last we heard about that from my memory, at least. I agree. So I'm going to go with 21. Wow. 21 out of 22. I'm going to change mine to a 17. Why? <laughs> Why? So. Because you're mean in my books. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do better job at scheduling the next one. <laughs> Oh, we didn't read quotes. Oh, we didn't read quotes. Do you want to read quotes? I don't have any. Let me... I just really like the Fool's Gold one. Okay. And then... Oh, I do have one. I have one. That's the very last two paragraphs of the book. Okay. Ooh, here's one that goes... Okay, so we understood that the dissolution of Mother's family was the inauguration of ours. It goes back to fragmentation. Mm. Like, in order for their family to work, she had to leave hers. The notion that a person could be functional, lucid, persuasive, and something could still be wrong. Woo! Dang, yo. What's her big facts? I know. I'm looking for more. He laid claim to that moment and all its consequences as if time itself had commenced the instant our station wagon wagon Wagon. left the road and there was no history, no context, no agency of any kind until he began it at the age of 17 by falling asleep at the wheel. That's when she is talking about Tyler taking like all the blame Mm -hmm. for what happens to um, his mother. And I thought that was like he abandoned all history, all other causes. Like she went to school to be a historic. What is it? A history historiographer is that what he went in for sorry i don't remember yeah historiographer yeah like she's studying historiography like how historians write no yeah historiography so historiography is like the study of history in the sense of like history writing wow yeah meta history yes that's what she's studying so that's why this is so interesting because she went on to study that and she wrote an entire book about how history like how the past and how memories are addressed Um, yeah probably should have talked about that earlier probably sorry guys um they'll swallow anything if it brings them hope Was that not powerful? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think what part that was. At. Um, It's when the mother's talking about like tinctures and potions and things. She's like, uh, they'll swallow anything if it gives them help. Uh, but like from like a, mm-hmm. like faith is something that gives you hope. Like mm-hmm. you'll swallow when things aren't ne- don't necessarily add up or don't make sense because you have hope when you have faith. Which so. is strange coming from her mother who I know made up a new way to rationalize with the world after her. I know. Her brain injury. But no one had ever taught me the modest way to bend over, so I knew I was probably doing it the bad way. Oh, I have one on conformity when she was dancing. 
I love the sensation of conformity. Learning to dance felt like learning to belong. It's beautiful. Suddenly that worth, worth felt conditional, like it could be taken or squandered. It was not inherent. It was bestowed. What was of worth was not me, but the veneer of constraints and observances that obscured me. Yet again, her not being able to define her own self-worth. Dang, these quotes are really great standalone. Yeah. If the first fall was God's will, whose was the second? No! (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) I I hate when we react to things like we wrote them. (laughs) I was like, like, oh man. I found this quote. I'm like, snaps, bro. Like me and like... A couple other million people. <laughs> I always highlight the ones that are like suggested. Yeah, but, like 30 million people highlight this quote and I'm like, yeah, I found it. You <laughs> <We> fucking do. <laughs> um, okay. Heck yeah. Only took us six months. Six? Four. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I Not one half of a year. A third. Uh, wow. I can't believe we've been on this. That's, the, that's bad. I know. Well... There's discussion between Yasmin and I that we may be talking about, what did we say? Oh, a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. About what, though? Oh, on another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, I thought we said the imposter syndrome. That's like a whole topic. Okay, so fun. let us know in the comments below. <laughs> do you want us to talk about imposter syndrome and do like a Therapodcast? A Therapodcast? <gasps> What? I pulled that. I pulled that right out of my brain. <laughs> right up here. Um, or do you want us to do a podcast on a podcast about... You listen to this one. I, I, I thought you were going to finish it because I couldn't remember. I don't remember. Okay, we're not... No, don't even comment. We're going to do it on, on imposter syndrome. That's it. I made the decision for us. Okay. Thank okay. you for tuning in. Um, six months late. Se- 17 months late to our discussion and rambling on Educated by Tara Westover. Thanks for still being here. If you are. (laughs) Love you, homie.